Well, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 and stand with me to read God's Word. We're going to be reading Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 12 this morning. Though we'll be looking at primarily one verse today. Matthew chapter 5 and beginning at verse 1. When Jesus saw the the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Lord, we just want to thank you for this day and the privilege of being here and the privilege of being alive We thank you, Lord, for your word, and we pray as we consider it today that you would do the work that you want to do in our hearts and in our families and in this church, and Lord, that it would flow out into the community and make a difference. And so we commit ourselves to you, and we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. A.W. Tozier said that you can get a fairly accurate description of the human race by taking the Beatitudes, turning them wrong side out, and saying, here is your human race. Because the exact opposite of the things found in the Beatitudes are what describe most human attitudes and actions. Tozer said this, he said, in the world of men, we find nothing approaching the virtues of which Jesus spoke. Instead of poverty of spirit, we find the rankest kind of pride. Instead of mourners, we find pleasure seekers. Instead of meekness, arrogance. Instead of hunger after righteousness, we hear men saying, I am rich and increased in goods and have need of nothing. Instead of mercy, we find cruelty. Instead of purity of heart, corrupt imaginings. Instead of peacemakers, we find men quarrelsome and resentful. Instead of rejoicing in mistreatment, we find them fighting back with every weapon at their command. That's one of the reasons the Sermon on the Mount is so applicable and relevant to our daily lives. There is this tension between the ideal presented and the reality of our response to that ideal. Between the goal and the desire to reach it. The standards are not easy to reach. But they are not totally unreachable either. 
Uh, to say that no one can attain to what the Sermon on the Mount teaches is to ignore Christ's purpose in this sermon. But to say that they are uh, attainable by anyone also ignores the reality of man's sinfulness. See, the sermon describes what Jesus expects from each of his disciples. What Jesus wants from each one who calls him Lord. The behavior of followers of Christ. A a quick rundown of the contents of the Sermon on the Mount will show us that it addresses uh, many, many applicable things. First of all, the the Christian's character in the Beatitudes, which we're going to be looking at one by one over eight weeks starting today. So a Christian's character. Also, it, 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 it shows a, a Christian's influence, the idea of being salt and light. Uh, two pictures, two metaphors of the influence for good that Christians are when they live their faith. The influence for good that we are when we live our faith. So you've got the Christian's character, you've got the Christian's influence, you've also got the Christian's conduct uh, that as it relates to things like murder and adultery and divorce and swearing and revenge and love and, and a, a, a lot of other things. So a Christian's conduct and how to relate. It also describes a Christian's devotion to God, a, a Christian's love for God, which is not supposed to be hypocritical like like the Pharisees and other religious leaders in those days were. It also wasn't to be empty like the irreligious people in those days. But it was to, um, to be full and rich and focused upon Jesus. So you've got a devotion to God. You've also got the Christian's ambition, what we should be seeking, uh, which should be for the glory of God above all things, above all earthly things. And then uh, a Christian's relationships how a Christian relates to others, and they should be, how they should be affected by our relationship with God. And so we do things like serve others rather than judge others. And lastly, in this Sermon on the Mount, there is a Christian's commitment, which is a response to what is really the, the ultimate issue of this sermon, which is Christ's authority over our lives. Christ's authority in our lives. See, the wise person obeys Jesus. The wise obey Jesus. Now, you may call him Lord. You may listen to his word. But if you don't do what he says, it's empty. And so Jesus is pointing to the the, uh, knowing and then doing of his word. Now, the sermon is really a picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. What it looks like for a person to follow Jesus Completely, to follow him fully, to be completely sold out to Jesus. Uh, It gives a picture, really, of what it looks like to be discipled by Jesus. To be in a discipling relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I love the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer pictured the scene of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Jesus on the mountain, the multitudes, and the disciples. Uh, The people see Jesus with his disciples, uh, gathered around him. Until recently, Bonhoeffer says, these men had been completely identified with the multitude. Just like the rest. Then came the call of Jesus, and they left all and followed him. Now they go with him, live with him, and follow him wherever he leads them. 
something unique had occurred to them. That disconcerting and offensive fact stares people in the face. The disciples see the people from whose midst they themselves have come. They are members of this people. They were of the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but they have listened to the voice of the good shepherd. But they see the people, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They will live among them. They will go into their midst. They will preach the call of Jesus. They will preach the glory of of discipleship, of following him. And then Jesus sees his disciples. They have publicly left the crowd to join him. He has called them. They have renounced everything at his call. They have only him. And with him they have nothing. Literally nothing in the world. But everything with and through God. You see, for them, God and his grace are truly enough. Now, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is what is commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. It's from the Latin meaning happiness. Now, there are eight of them. And they tell who is blessed and the reason for the blessing and what the blessing is. Now, each one of the Beatitudes starts out blessed. Blessed are. It's a, it's a Greek word, makarios. It means happy. It means fortunate. It means um, blissful. Happy. Um, Homer used that word of a wealthy person, someone who was rich financially. Plato described someone who was successful in business with that word. The Bible uses it of God. Blessed be the Lord. The Psalms say it often. Blessed be the Lord God. And also the Bible uses it of those who love God, those who follow him. Now, so here you have in Jesus' first recorded public address, first recorded uh, sermon, message, you've got him talking about how to be happy. How to be happy. Uh, A basic human desire. He addresses human need and he tells how it is realized in him. But the Beatitudes aren't a recipe for happiness as the world describes happiness, as the world defines happiness. See, the world tries to manufacture happiness. We try to manufacture happiness. And it becomes something empty. It's a hollow shell of what we're truly looking for. The Makarios is blessed, is rooted in the character of God. It's rooted in who God is, in and of himself, needing no outside agency to help. Uh, who God is, it, it means something much deeper than the uh, shallow, you know, surfacey, you know, happiness, what we maybe throw around at times. It's more than a feeling. See, when we come to know Jesus, we become partakers of his blessedness, of 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 who he is. It means, here's what it means. It means more like being fully content. It means more like being completely satisfied. It's when you eat a good meal and you don't eat too much and you don't eat too little. You're just right. Completely satisfied. Fully, fully contented. See, the Beatitudes describe happiness, uh, true happiness. So we throw around a very simple, glib uh, word, happy, that means nothing of what the Bible is touching on. This is a deep, 
deep uh, uh, sense of well-being. Bible describes true happiness as coming from God. Uh, closer, it's really closer to the biblical idea of peace. Peace. Now, in the Old Testament, the word was shalom. It meant health, it meant security, uh, it meant tranquility. It was a deep, abiding knowledge that all is well because God is in control and he's with you. Shalom means. Um, To wish someone shalom would be to give them a blessing, to pronounce them blessed. If you withheld that, you were saying they weren't blessed. You were withholding a blessing, okay? Now, in the New Testament, the, the word for peace is arene. It's another word, but it basically means the absence of strife. The absence of strife. It's, it's a sense of well-being because God is sovereign, God is in control, but it's a state of well-being that is not affected by anything on the outside. Okay? That's blessed. Blessed. Okay. Now, what the Beatitudes do is they describe. They describe. They describe people. Now, not eight different kinds of people. One kind of person. Christians. Followers of Jesus. Those who've come to faith in Christ and believing have life in his name. The Beatitudes describe people who are blessed because they know Jesus. Blessed because they have a living hope. See, the Beatitudes describe Christians. We've got to be really clear about this. It's very easy then to just say, hey, by the way, if you are, in any sense, persecuted, you, you know, you're blessed. Or if you are in, in any way poor in spirit, and we'll find out what that means in a few minutes, but if, if, if you are in, in any way that way, then you're blessed. That's not what we're saying. We're saying if you are a believer in Jesus, this is who's being described. Those whose hope is not dependent upon anything they find on earth, but in heaven. Now, you may know a lot of Christians who don't fit the description, though. You know? You're like, doesn't sound like me. Doesn't sound like anybody I know. I knew someone like that once, right? I read about him. His name's Jesus. <laughs> uh, but see, the qualities, there's qualities getting pointed out here. The qualities pointed out in the Beatitudes are spiritual. They're spiritual. Some people will say that they're, you know, they're, they're relational, they're social, and they're more on a morality uh, sense. They're not. The focus of Jesus' words, if you look in the Beatitudes here, do a quick rundown. You've got uh, heaven, kingdom of heaven. You've got um, comfort. You've got uh, inheritance. You've got uh, righteousness and mercy, seeing God, being called sons of God, um, kingdom of heaven again. Those are spiritual terms. Those are not earthly terms. Now, they can be worked out here on earth a bit, but they are, they are spiritual uh, primarily. Now, the, the Beatitudes, um, the focus is explaining the condition, if not always the conduct of Christians. All right? So, for example, the ideal, but not the actual response all the time. So that should give you a little bit of comfort, you know? Hey, I don't... I, I, doesn't sound like me, I'm in trouble. Well, this is your spiritual standing, not, not, not necessarily how you always live, though God would, would sure like there to be a, um, a uh, continuity between the two. Um, 
Now, that's not to say you shouldn't aspire to be this way as you read through these Beatitudes. Um, God wants us to yield to him in such a way that what comes out in our life is what he is wanting us to be. But you don't go in saying this, you know, I'm really going to work hard this year about being more poor in spirit. You know, I, uh, I, I need to be more merciful. I'm going to work on that. I need to be more pure in heart. You don't go in saying, you know, I, I really would like to get myself persecuted more this year. You know? Um, see, it's not wrong to, uh, to desire these qualities in your life. They're just not things you can manufacture. They're not things that you can work up. Um, you may desire to be like this. I'm hoping you do. And you may make choices that reflect these things. I hope you do. But remember this. The Beatitudes are descriptive, not prescriptive. It's not a list of things to do. It's a list of things you are by virtue of your, of your relationship with Jesus Christ, those who know him, those who would call themselves a Christian, uh, being saved by faith, by grace, and by faith in Christ. Um, they describe the person who trusts Jesus. There are rewards. The, 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 the Beatitudes, blessed are this, these, these, the person and and. And here's, here's the deal. Because, and has a, a blessing, uh, that's the reward. Um, they're promised. They're promised. Now, they're promised as something. It's, again, it's easier to read, very easy to read this and say, well, I've got to work really hard because I want to get the benefit. I want to, I want to work really hard to be pure in heart so that I can, I can earn the, the kingdom of heaven. I, well, I just want to go there, you know? That's not, that's not the point. The thing is, these are promised as an unearned gift. These are promised as an unearned gift of God's grace. And the eight blessings are given to every Christian. If you're a Christian and you hear these words right now, you have these. These are true about you. And you say, well, I haven't lived that yet. Well, they're still positionally true about you. It's going to happen, though. All right? (laughs) You haven't been persecuted yet? It'll happen. Don't worry about it. Okay? Um, Now, are they... Are they present blessings that we enjoy? Are they just here for, for now, here on earth? Some people say that. They say, this is just for here and now. Or are they future blessings to in, in, um, enjoy another day? Some people say that. You know, they're, they're just for the future. So what are they? Well, the answer is both. There are present blessings we enjoy now and future blessings that remind us that, that now is not all there is. Okay, think with me on this. Eternal life is something that, ha- that, that begins the moment you come to faith in Christ. And it continues on. And, um, and you enjoy blessings now in your life. And then you will enjoy more blessings to a greater extent in the future. Okay? These same blessings. But to a greater extent. And so, look at the Beatitudes with me for a moment. Now, you think of the, the first one and the last one. Okay? The first and the eighth. You've got the blessing in the present tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You go to the last one, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you've got the first and the eighth Beatitudes, the bookends in a, in a sense, in the present tense. So, um, but, but then the middle six, those are all in the future tense. They shall, 
Next week, we'll be looking at those who mourn. Those Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So that's looking to the future. But the future tense here emphasizes the certainty that this will happen. Not that, hey, by the way, if you're mourning, great. Hold tight, because it'll ha- someday you'll be, you'll, you know, you'll be comforted someday. But you've got to wait a long time for it. Well, no, we know we have our comfort. Our comfort is full and rich in Christ now, and it will be continuing on through eternity. And so the idea is that the, the future emphasis emphasizes that they are certain that it will happen. And it's kind of like this. You enjoy the first fruits now, you'll enjoy the full harvest later. Okay? So that's the idea. God gives us joy now and promises us even greater joy in our future uh, home in heaven. William Barclay put it this way. In fact, it's in your notes. Uh, in the face of the Beatitudes, thinking about how you live now, in the face of the Beatitudes, a gloom-encompassed Christianity is unthinkable. The Beatitudes speak of that joy which seeks us through our pain. That joy which sorrow and loss, pain and grief are powerless to touch. That joy which shines through tears and which nothing in life or death can take away. This joy is completely independent of all chances and changes in life. The Christian has the serene and untouchable joy which comes from walking forever in the company and in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's now and forever. So, let's look with that at the first beatitude, okay? Beatitude number one, verse three. Matthew five, verse three. Blessed, following the pattern, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's the beatitude. What does it mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? First, let's talk about what it means to be poor. Some of you can relate. Poor. Now, it comes from a word meaning to shrink, to crouch, to cower, uh, literally to cringe. Uh, it was used in those days of beggars who were you know, totally destitute, having nothing. In those days, beggars would often crouch in a corner, begging. Now, there are two kinds of poor portrayed in Scripture. You, say, you might say, well, I'm poor. Well, you're not, you're not probably, you're probably only one, one kind of the, this poor. There are two kinds of poor in, in Scripture. The first poor is like the widow uh, who had only two small coins left. And you think, wow, how, how, how close to the edge she was. Two left, that's all she had to live on. But you've got to remember something. She had something. She had two small coins, all right? Um, she wasn't completely broke. She had something. Now, she did give that, right? She did give that. Um, but the other kind of poor is completely dependent on others for help. The other kind of poor is abs- having absolutely no means of support in themselves. No resources whatsoever. Absolutely none. Broke completely. Now, the second kind of poor is the kind referred to here. But we're not talking financially. We're not talking monetarily. We're talking spiritually. So to be poor in spirit means 
that you acknowledge your poverty spiritually before God, that you acknowledge that you're broke. No money, no resources. You acknowledge your spiritual poverty and bankruptcy before God. Now, when you get to that point, when you are that way, you're not spiritually arrogant. You just can't be. That. When, you're like, when you're in that mode and you realize, God, I have nothing, if you have seen a beggar, whether it is here in America or overseas, they are humble. They, they don't get usually up on a pedestal and, and start shouting for people to give them money. They get low to the ground, reflecting their status in their own eyes and in the eyes of the world. When you're driving off the freeway today, you get to the exit and someone is crouching there with a sign, it's because they feel low. Because they've got to the point, if it's, if, it's, if it's real in their life, they've got to the point where they realize, I have nothing unless someone else helps me. You think about the poor, just monetarily even. Uh, Proverbs is, is stock full of, of places that say, don't close your heart to the poor. Don't be arrogant against them. Jesus himself said, you're going to have the poor with you, always. But this is not talking about poor financially. Because if so, Jesus would be negating something else he said about helping the poor. Because <laughs> here he says the poor in spirit, they're going to have the kingdom of heaven. It's poor spiritually who acknowledges their, their spiritual need. They recognize the spiritual need. Now that raises some questions that need to be answered if we want to get a handle on understanding this teaching as well as live it on a daily basis. How can you, be, you know, live in a poor in spirit state? What, what does that mean? If this, is, if this is describing Christians and you're a Christian, then how does this relate to you? Was it something that was only in the past for you? Or is it now? And are you supposed to get over it? Or are you supposed to keep being that way? What? What do you do? What are you supposed to do with that? Um, should we be seeking to be free from our poverty of spirit? Um, does God want us to continue being that way? Is it a positive or a negative state of being? We need to know. And also, what if I'm not feeling at all poor in spirit? What if I'm just not feeling it? Is there something wrong with me? Maybe. So let's ask a couple of these questions. Do you ever get over being poor in spirit? Do you ever get to the point, is it like, hey, I'm poor in spirit, but do I recognize my need? Thank you, Jesus. Save me. Now I'm not poor in spirit anymore. Hallelujah. You know, and you just keep going. Now you're rich in spirit. Well, in some sense, you become rich in spirit, yes. But do you, be, do you stay that way? Think with me on this. You can't make yourself poor in spirit. First of all, you can't manufacture that, okay? It's something that you are. Poor in spirit. You, you come to realize a fact that exists. So you can't make yourself poor in spirit. You can't make yourself poor in spirit. If that's just the way it is, if that's just the way you are, then you can't make yourself not poor in spirit either, Right? So, I believe that you don't stop being aware that you are poor in spirit. You are always aware of your need spiritually before God. Now, you become, in Christ, very rich in Christ, but you are always poor in and of yourself. Okay? So, you're always aware of your need. It's a state of being that has to be present when you come to faith in Christ. And it's got to be a part of your awareness going forward all through your life that spiritually you have and are nothing without 
the Lord. At the same time, though, you are rich in Christ. It's as Paul says in Corinthians, you, are, you have nothing, but you possess all things. You're rich in Christ. Your standing changes when you come to Christ. But you always realize your poorness in spirit, your poverty, your, your bankruptcy in spirit apart from Christ. So the question is, what if, what if you're not feeling it? What if you say, hey, I'm not feeling poor in spirit at all? What's my problem? Well, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 55. We'll go to the Old Testament first, then I'll take you somewhere in the New Testament. We'll go on a little trip here for a moment, and a little side trip about, poor, about this. And in Isaiah 55, see, here's the thing. If you don't feel poor in spirit one iota, that will produce in you a warped view of life in Christ, a warped view of what it means to be a Christian. An unhealthy one that sees you as the initiator of everything. That sees you as the initiator of your salvation. You as the initiator of your growth in Christ. That you're in control of it all. Now, Isaiah 55, verse 1. God is offering free mercy. Okay, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money... Come buy and eat. Well, I don't have any money. How can I buy? How can I eat? God is gonna, God's saying, I'm going to give you the resources. Just come to me. I will give you what you need. Okay? So you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk. Oh, without money, without cost. It's been paid for already. It's been paid for. And then he says in verse 2, Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Pointing to us, looking for what satisfies our soul that can never do it because it's not God. Anything and everything on the landscape that we, want, we go to and we run to, thinking it's going to make us happy, thinking it's going to bring fulfillment in our life. And, and God says this, listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear to me and come to me. Listen that you may live. He's going to talk to them about seeking the Lord. He's going to talk to them about his ways that are higher than theirs. He's going to talk to them about his word that has its effect in their life that God wants to bring about, and it will come about. So if you think about it in that sense, God's the initiator. God is the, the provider. God's in control. And we, but we go along with it, and we want, we want to do what God wants to do, right? Wants us to do. Now go to Revelation chapter 3 with me. Go to the end of the Bible there, and... Early on in Revelation, in, in chapter 3, okay, now, you've got the messages to the church, okay, Jesus is talking to the church, and in verse 14, Revelation three fourteen, he gives a message to the church in Laodicea, and he says, verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He's talking to a church. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have, known and have need of nothing. Even from God? And you do not know, here's what Jesus says to the church, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So he's going to give them some advice. 
So what do you do? Verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And then in verse 19, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Turn from this sin. And then verse 20. We use this verse as an evangelistic tool, but it is spoken to the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, and they should if they know the good shepherd, and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. Listen. So here's the thing. You don't get over being poor in spirit, but you are rich in Christ. You are poor in and of yourself. And you don't forget that. In fact, my take on it is this. You become more aware of it as, as you go along through life. When you come to Christ, when you come to faith in Christ, you know how poverty-stricken you are and how broke you are. And as you keep going, you become so more, much more amazed at God's grace and you realize how unworthy you are in and of yourself, though you know how rich you are in Christ. We always need God. What's the benefit? What's the benefit of being poor in spirit? Look at the second part of uh, Matthew 5.3. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Already theirs. They possess nothing. They may possess nothing on earth, but they possess everything in heaven, positionally. Now, the phrase kingdom of heaven is found only in Matthew. Heaven here is a euphemism for God. Elsewhere in the Gospels, it's the kingdom of God. The rule of God in the lives of his people. It's not a place you go, it's a state in which you live. State of being. Um, The benefit of being poor in spirit is that God rules in your life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know they're bankrupt in God's, in God's economy because I rule in their life. That's what God is saying. See, those who are forgiven and have new life in Christ have God dwelling in them spiritually. And so God's kingdom is within them. God's rule is within them. And the rule of God has nothing to do with well, well, I'm keeping track of the good things we've accomplished. The position we hold, the wealth we've accumulated, the popularity or the position that we obtain. Or, and it doesn't have anything to do with all the bad things we've done either. You know? There was a time in my life when I would uh, go to church on Sunday morning after a Saturday night of um, unchurch-like activities and I was convicted by the Holy Spirit. You may be in that mode today. But it's not about the good things you've done or the bad things you've done. Uh, that's not what it's about. It's about, because Solomon in Ecclesiastes says all that stuff, is meaningless, vanity, chasing after wind, uh, futile. God's rule in your life is based upon God ruling who God is. And when you know him, you are blessed in him because he is always with you. So interestingly, you go through a stage of waywardness and, and God is right there all the time. He didn't leave you. You turned your back on him. And it's like, Lord, forgive me. I confess my sins. Lead me. And instantly, the direction changes. Because God does that. So, speaking of response, you got this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How do we respond to that? 
What will being poor in spirit reflect in our life? When you admit your bankruptcy, when you admit that you have nothing, no resources apart from Christ, what will it reflect? Well, the first thing it's going to reflect is dependency. Being dependent on God for everything. Rather than self-sufficiency. Rather than relying upon your abilities or your paycheck or other relationships. If you're poor in spirit, you're, you, you acknowledge your dependence upon God for everything. Salvation and everything else that comes with it. See, this first beatitude illustrates salvation by grace. Have you recognized that as we've looked at this this morning? Um, not works. Salvation by grace, not works. It's really easy for people to look at the Sermon on the Mount and think, it's all these things i got to do. Okay? It's about who you are in Christ. Um, the kingdom is promised to those who have nothing of merit to offer. Salvation by grace, not works. See, Christ does not give instructions in the Sermon on the Mount about how to become a Christian though it is a great evangelistic tool, the Sermon on the Mount. It's very interesting. He gives instructions about um, the works and fruit that no one can do unless they already are a Christian. Already are in a state of grace. It's for those who've experienced the spiritual new birth, which Jesus told Nicodemus was a, a condition for seeing the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Those who have gone from spiritual death to spiritual life by the supernatural working of God who have come to him in faith simply believing in Jesus? Simply believing the simple gospel message? This belief uh, based upon the death of Jesus Christ in our place, taking our sins on the cross and about his resurrection, his, his, his coming back from life from death, coming back to life from death. The change then God brings about is an interchange. Last week we sang that song, From the Inside Out. Perfect song to sing on the start of a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. God wants to change us from the inside out. It's a change of the heart that shows itself in the life. The righteousness described is an inner righteousness. And it shows itself outwardly, but the interchange, um, change of heart brings about, is, is what is uh, the reality it's reflecting. And he gives us that joy that we never knew. And we are blessed. And we never get over it. We always realize how dependent we are on God. It's, um, it's the idea of God as your sole provider. It's, it's the opposite of going independent. There's something else that being poor in spirit will reflect. It will reflect humility. You can kind of see that in the title. The non-arrogant. <laughs> um, the humility rather than arrogance. Go with me to Luke chapter 18. A very familiar passage about two men. One was a Pharisee. One was a tax collector. One was proud. One was humble. One was puffed up. One crouched low to the ground. Um, Jesus told this to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they viewed others with contempt. They, they looked down upon other people. See, two men went up to the temple to pray. A Pharisee, a religious man, a, a legalistic man, a man who thought he was a cut above everyone else. And the other was a tax collector, someone looked down upon, someone who was considered the, one of the dregs you know, of, of, 
of society. Now, the, the Pharisee stood and prayed. He's a proud man. I can see him getting up on a little, a little platform. Anyway, and um, he stood and was praying and said, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I'm not a swindler. I'm not unjust. I don't commit adultery. I'm not like this tax collector. And then he goes in and rehearses all the things he did, all the good things he'd done. And here's a tax collector standing some distance away, couldn't come near, didn't feel worthy. And he um, couldn't even lift his head, just kept it down. And, and he beat on his chest, and he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus says, that's the guy that was uh, justified. That's the guy that was right in my sight. It's humble. Uh, in contrast to proud, if you're non-arrogant, then, then you're humble. It's a good place to be. God wants you to stay there. Um, I know we fluctuate. Um, but you'll consider other people more important than yourself, as Philippians 2 talks about. You won't worry about who gets the credit. You won't worry about who had the great idea. You just wanna, you're going to serve the Lord with gladness, and you're just glad you're alive, and, 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 and um, glad that you're, you're around to, to do something of value in God's sight. That's, that's humble. Uh, in all humility is a constant posture that God wants us to walk in. There's one more thing it'll reflect, and it'll reflect honesty. So you've got dependence, humility, and honesty. Honesty rather than denying your true condition. You're honest where you're at in life. Um, you're not afraid to admit it. Cause, because the, the poor in spirit are, are not spiritually arrogant. They're dependent on God. They're humble. They're not afraid to admit, their, to admit their need for God every day. They're not afraid to admit they're wrong. See, they can hide it from other people by saying, yeah, everything's good, I'm doing great. Or they can be honest about it. See, they know they are nothing and have nothing apart from Jesus. They possess nothing, but they have all things in Christ. There's been a recognition of need. See, when you realize your bankruptcy in, uh, apart from Christ, and you start trading in God's currency, and, and the thing is, here's the thing, you could have been a believer for years and thought that being poor in spirit was, was just at the beginning of the Christian life, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 10 years ago, when you came to faith in Christ, and then you were over it. No, it's for all the time, for all the time. You may have thrown being poor in spirit out the window a long time ago, thinking, I did that already, checked it off the list. It was the first one. Come on, I'm down on number eight already. I'm trying to get persecuted. Don't talk to me about being poor in spirit. Okay? Well, here's the thing. When you, things happen to you when you start seeing yourself in this way. Now, I realize you can go too far that way. You can go, oh, I'm so bad. No, no, no. That's not what we're talking about here. All right? We're talking about I'm nothing without Jesus. It's when Jesus said in John 15, 5, one of my favorite verses, apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? So you develop an eternal mindset. You start thinking more what can affect eternity rather than what can just affect tomorrow or get the bills paid or get the bottom line at the end of the month. There's this eternal mindset. You start thinking about God's true riches and, and things like that, and it leads to a confident trust. You begin to trust in God's unlimited resources that there is nothing that is impossible with God. 
And what you find is you have an, a heavenly ambition. You want, you want what God wants, whatever that might be. You might not even know what it is. But then you start seeking to stock up treasures on, in heaven rather than stockpiling them here on earth. You just amazed you're in, and you're, you're along for the ride, and you say, what do you want, Lord? I'm open. You start the day that way. Just, Lord, whatever you have for me today, thy will be done. Because I'm nothing without you, nothing apart from you, everything in you. Okay? So that's it. Um, the poor in spirit will say to God, just like what Paul said, that it's a trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. You see, Paul never got over being poor in spirit. He knew he was that way from start to finish. But he also knew that he had the unlimited riches of Christ that he also walked in. That he was rich in Christ, poor in himself. And so you would also agree with Paul when he said, I am what I am by the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we don't want to presume to, to be in control here. We, we know that salvation and Christian growth are all by grace. And that every blessing in our life is all by grace. And so Lord, we just come to you, acknowledging that. And we just want to keep saying the words of that old song that says, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Lord, we have no hope but you in the world. And you are our sole provider. And we are amazed, amazed at your grace. And we thank you in Jesus.